You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Pediatric obesity is increasing worldwide, as is the diagnosis of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes in kids. Joining us to discuss the challenges facing healthcare professionals in the diagnosis and treatment of diabetes in childhood is pediatric endocrinologist and clinical researcher at the University of California San Diego Children's Hospital in San Diego, California, Dr. Sue Phillips. Dr. Phillips, welcome to Reach MD. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. Let's jump into the incidence of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I've heard that they're both increasing quite dramatically. Yeah, you're right. The rates of type 1 diabetes have been increasing since 1980, concurrent with the increase in childhood obesity. There have been increases around the globe averaging about 2.8% per year. And in the U.S., type 1 diabetes has been increasing at a rate of 5.6% per year. And the trend data suggests that obesity may be driving autoimmune beta cell failure. And some have questioned whether excess obesity or adiposity might be playing a role in this increased incidence of type 1 diabetes. We certainly associate obesity with type 2 diabetes. And you're right, you know, why should obesity increase an autoimmune mechanism, which is really the cause for type 1 diabetes? That's quite interesting. Yeah, I think others believe that the reason that the trends are increasing is because we're just not recognizing new type 2 diabetes. And there was a recent article that actually looked into this. It's called The Search for Diabetes in Youth. It's a U.S. study published in JAMA in 2007. And it was one of the first good looks at the incidence of type 1 and type 2 in the U.S. population. And they found that both type 1 and type 2 were increasing relative to previous measures. And type 1 diabetes continues to be the predominant form of diabetes in young children. So if you look at children who are 0 to 5 years and 5 to 9 years, the incidence of type 1 diabetes is somewhere between 14 and 22 cases per 100,000. So what's the link between obesity and type 2 diabetes when we're talking about kids? It's definitely a significant risk factor for the development of type 2 diabetes. That is, the majority of children who are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes have BMIs of greater than the 95th percentile. As you know, Steve, in pediatrics, we don't define obesity by a set BMI of greater than 30. We do it by a percentile, and that is greater than or equal to the 95th percentile. And we believe that obesity links to type 2 diabetes by way of causing insulin resistance. And it may be that in people who are obese, they're doing less exercise and they're eating more fats, and we may develop insulin resistance in that way. Or it may be that as they put down more fat, that fat produces factors such as inflammatory cytokines, which impair the tissue's response to insulin. And that sounds very similar to what we see in adults with type 2 diabetes and obesity. Exactly. I think that the process is the same. What are the main challenges in recognizing diabetes in kids? Type 2 is rather difficult to recognize, and I think we have a default of 
treating newly diagnosed kids with diabetes the same. So, for example, of children who have type 2 diabetes, up to 30% will present in DKA. So you really don't know when you have that child in the ER whether you're dealing with a kid with type 1 or type 2. So the default is to treat them and support them as you would any other diabetic. And then as uh, time goes on, you can use various indicators to sort out the differences. What are those indicators? Well, again, you'll have a family history, an older age, racial and ethnic tendencies in type 2 diabetes are very strong. So African-American and Latino populations have a disproportionate share of the prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So you'll do laboratory studies and not find that there is beta cell autoimmunity. You'll find uh, that they have high levels of C-peptide. And generally speaking, they're obese and from a family with a history of type 2 diabetes. Well, give us just the labs that you would order in a newly diagnosed kid. For diagnostics, I would check a ICA-512 antibody, a GAD antibody, and an insulin antibody. Also, a C-peptide and a fasting insulin level. So between all those tests, you get a pretty good idea, along with your history, if the patient is tendency towards type 1 versus type 2. Yeah. The, for example, if you have the GAD-65 antibody in type 1 diabetes, it's present in 75% of the cases. So it's very helpful to have the GAD or the ICA-512 positive because it sort of makes you more suspicious that you're dealing with an autoimmune process. And that makes a big difference, not only in terms of therapeutics, but also genetic counseling as well as that child gets older. One more thing about type 1 versus type 2, there's a growing feeling in the area of diabetes treatment in pediatrics that a number of children who have type 1 diabetes may show some of the features of type 2. So you have an increasing number of children with type 1, that is autoantibody positive, who are obese as well. And so some of the investigators call these type 1.5 or type 2.5. The important thing to recognize is that you may be dealing with a child who has type 1 diabetes who may benefit from insulin-sensitizing treatment. Well, how are we helping these patients and their family deal with diabetes once they're diagnosed? I I could imagine it's a pretty devastating diagnosis. Yeah, we're fortunate at Children's Hospital in San Diego that we have a comprehensive approach to the treatment and management of newly diagnosed diabetics. And that begins with the admission to the hospital, the management of the metabolic disorder itself, and then with the education piece, we have a book which is called The Pink Panther, and it goes through the basics of diabetes management. We have a schedule of education objectives, which we go through and help the family to address their concerns about problems in diabetes management. Do you have a clinical psychologist helping out as well? Oh, I wish we did. At present, we don't, um, and it would be really good to have one. Some institutions do have that piece as well. We have an excellent nutritionist, And we have clinical social workers who have gained expertise in the treatment of diabetes. So they are very helpful. Well, what's been happening in terms of the trends towards therapy? I know that when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, they kept me in the hospital a whole week. And I know nowadays they're trying to do more practical outpatient type of therapy. Yeah, we'd all love to move a lot of the education piece to the outpatient arena. However, we've been sort of stymied in this in that we don't have insurance 
reimbursement for the significant amount of time that it takes to provide the education that we do. But we and others are working on developing an outpatient approach, particularly to stable type 2 diabetics. What would you recommend to a busy primary care physician in an area that doesn't have uh, a pediatric endocrinologist with a newly diagnosed kid with diabetes? I think that um, follow the normal procedures in terms of making the diagnosis of diabetes itself. So confirm hyperglycemia and assess the tests that I uh, recommended in terms of antibodies. Based on a elevated fasting glucose, and uh, a confirmation of that or a DKA, you'll have made the diagnosis of diabetes. Then they may treat with um, insulin initially um, if the patient is not metabolically stable and then transition to an oral treatment such as metformin. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Steve Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Susan Phillips. We are discussing the challenges facing the healthcare professionals in the diagnosis and treatment of diabetes in kids. Well, what are some of the other diabetes-like diseases that we are seeing? There are a number of causes of diabetes that don't relate to the more typical autoimmune destruction of the islet cells. In some cases, the pancreas is unable to make insulin because it's deficient in transcription factors or in machinery responsible for the release of insulin from the beta cell. And uh, the older designation was one for neonatal diabetes, that is diabetes diagnosed at age less than six months, and MODI, or mature onset diabetes of youth, But investigators are moving away from these older designations to basically identifying these conditions for underlying genetic defects. Well, let's talk a little bit more about MODI. I mean, most of us are used to the different types of MODI. And describe clinically what happens in someone that has MODI. What do they present as or if they don't present? It may be someone who's presenting with asymptomatic fasting hyperglycemia and has no symptoms of hyperglycemia, that is no polyuria, no polydipsia, no nocturia, and they just have asymptomatic hyperglycemia. And it's not moderate or severe, it's mild. And that might be due to a glucokinase defect. And really in that situation, you make the diagnosis, you confirm that there is a autosomal dominant, a pattern of inheritance, and if they're antibody negative, they're not obese, they don't have signs of insulin resistance, and you can be comfortable then in reassuring the patient. And there's blood tests now to confirm that? That's correct. So Athena Diagnostics and other um, companies will do genetic testing. Well, what kind of therapies do we use in these other types of diabetes? In the MODI-3, the HNF1-alpha mutation that results in more significant elevation of glucose, those subjects are treated with sulfonylureas, and they respond quite well. Well, let's finish up the show with potential for a cure. There's everything from islet cell transplantation to modulating, you know, the immune response. What's the most exciting to you, Sue? Well, I think it's the modulation of the T-cell response. I'm very excited about our colleague in the pediatric department, Matthias's work in Treg function, and he's doing some early studies with our department on studying this important T-cell population and its function in the early immune response of diabetes type 1. In addition, there are some interesting results on 
the heat shock proteins in modulating the immune response. But I haven't seen anything that is ready for prime time yet. The islet cell transplantations scare me a little bit because of the lifetime of immunosuppressive therapy they would require in an otherwise healthy population. Yeah, I agree. It's a pretty big step going to a transplantation where you have to take pretty high doses of immunosuppressants. I'd like to thank our guest, pediatric endocrinologist and clinical researcher at the University of California San Diego Medical Center and Radies Children's Hospital in San Diego, Dr. Susan Phillips. Dr. Phillips, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess, in a way, it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.